Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifschdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by fellow historian, although not medievalist, Morgan Morales, also a returning guest, to discuss the 2021 film, The Tragedy of Macbeth. So Morgan, welcome. Thank you. Yes, I'm the modern historian you can't get rid of here. (laughs) (laughs) Always good to have you. So why don't you tell the listeners who might not have heard your previous episodes who you are and why you wanted to talk about this particular film? I am Morgan Morales. I'm a PhD candidate at UNC working on a reproductive health care history for Jewish women uh, during the Holocaust. And I like movies, basically, um, which is kind of why I keep coming back. Um, I am kind of an armchair Oscar expert and film fan. I mean, this was an exciting version of Macbeth to hear was ha- that it was going to happen simply for the cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you hear that Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington are going to work together, I think you turn up no matter what. Right. Absolutely. And then the added bonus that it's directed by a Cohen. Yes, a Cohen, uh, which uh, we'll we'll talk about momentarily. But yeah, uh, you you I feel like are our resident like person who actually knows something about film on this podcast, as opposed to me when I low-key do not know anything about film. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time, (laughs) probably too much time with film history. Yeah, I've been asked why I didn't go into film, and I said, because it's a hobby. I don't want to make it work. Yeah, no, which is is fair. So, Um, Which is kind of great about podcasting, because it means I can talk about it. But it's still not exactly work. It's not work, and all that knowledge is going somewhere. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. so it's, which is nice. Mm-hmm. So yes, so today we are talking to, uh, going to be talking about the tragedy of Macbeth, directed by Joel Cohen, and this is the first film directed by only one Cohen brother. Yeah, their Wikipedia entries are joined. Neither of them has yeah. their own individual entry. Aww, that's that, like kind that of is, cute, but also I know that's how entwined their careers are. I like, I feel like I just don't know the difference between them, honestly. Like, I don't, like, I had to look up which one it was that directed this movie. I was like, I know it's one of them. And I'm pretty sure that the one who directed this is the one who's married to Frances McDormand. Yes, they have been married since 1984. But like, without assuming that I, like, I don't think I would know which of them she was married to. No, I don't either. She also works with them quite a lot. Oh yeah, no, of course. Which I mean, which makes sense. It does. Yeah, I mean, Fargo, Burn After Reading. She does. She she. I mean, it's a consistent partnership between both her husband and her brother-in-law, and it works. Yeah. I mean, Fargo yeah. got her first Oscar for. Yeah. No, and you know, she. I mean, she always does fantastic work, but you know, I think she certainly has done. Yeah, has done a lot of fantastic work with her husband and her brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. Oh, Francis is going to be the one who will match Catherine Hepburn's Oscar record. It won't be Meryl Streep. It will be Francis McDormand. That is your official prediction? That is my official prediction. Um, Catherine Hepburn's Oscar record isn't just four wins. It's four wins in one category as lead actress. Okay. And Francis where is Francis on that? She's got three already. She's got three. Fargo, uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, and now Nomadland. Mm-hmm. She- and, and how many does Meryl have? two leading one supporting okay so you know she's so she's certainly further behind at least she's you know in one aspect Meryl Streep is a little behind (laughs) (laughs) the the one time you'll say like oh Meryl Streep like such an underachiever 
such an underachiever. But yeah, her her <laughs> Oscar for Kramer versus Kramer was supporting, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which was her first back in seventy eight. But Frances since ninety six, all all of her wins have been for lead actress. So mm-hmm. and she has an, a better nomination to win ratio. Um, mm. If you look at how many nominations that Meryl Streep has compared to wins, it's actually very easy to defeat Meryl Streep at the Oscars. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. I, I wonder mean, if that's sort of because I think there's just like a default nomination of Meryl Streep and that doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to win, but she like always gets nominated. She does. And off, very frequently it's it's a lazy choice. Yeah. And that yeah. is not to say that Meryl Streep is not great. Meryl Streep is great, but come on, nominating Meryl Streep for Into the Woods Mm-hmm. That was late. And I think it, yeah. And I think honestly, I, I think it does kind of speak to, to some extent, the fact that I still don't think there are as interesting roles, especially lead roles for women in general. Yeah. Um, I think that when you look at the, the Academy, particularly in the past 10 years, the more interesting nominees are always the women compared to the men. So right. There are some years where I, I will look at them side by side and I'll think, wow, these 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 roles for women are incredible. These are incredible performances. Mm-hmm. But then there are years like I think 2015 really sticks out to me. And that's when DiCaprio won for The Revenant, where I'm just kind of mm. bored by everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah. So, I mean, but also it, it's, I think, a matter that a, a woman has to stand out a little bit more than a man. Yes. In order yeah. to get nominated. And it means that the women's categories are usually more competitive. Yeah. I mean, you look at this year where it's, it's Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh duking it out. Right. Yeah. No, it's just going to be, it's going to be interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yes, that is my prediction that the one who will match Catherine Hepburn's four best actress wins, it's going to be Frances McDormand. The numbers support it more than Meryl Streep. I buy that. Yeah. So we have, of course, Frances McDormand as Lady Macbeth. And am I remembering correctly? I forgot to look up what the nominations were. Am I remembering correctly? She did not get nominated. I was surprised by that, honestly. I, I was too. Um, I, I do think last year was kind of weird. Yeah. Because it's it yeah. is it's a 2021 movie, which means that this Oscar cycle that is happening right now as we speak is for the 2022 releases. So right. yes. a year ago that they were going through all of the Oscars. Yes. So this is a very, very strange Last year, I, I I thought was a little bit strange where there were some things that just really weren't all that predictable, maybe a little bit yeah. off. I don't think it was as, quite as good of a year overall as 2020 was. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, I think Francis would have been worthy of a nomination. Yeah. And it was also, I mean, it's kind of a weird year in that I guess it was probably the first year that there were movies coming out that had been like made during COVID, right? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. the 2020 ones would have been made before or, you know, perhaps interrupted in the middle of filming. Yeah, but at least like partly would have been filmed pre-COVID, whereas, yeah, 2021 as yeah, probably a lot of stuff that was actually filmed during COVID. So right. you definitely have to wonder how that affects, you know, what's what's actually kind of coming out. Yeah, yeah, um, that that could very well be be something to consider. Frances McDormand as Lady Macbeth and Denzel Washington as Macbeth. Also excellent performance. And he was nominated, I believe. He was. He lost to Will Smith for King Richard. That's right. And the- a, a, a rather Shakespearean title for a not Shakespearean tale. Right, right. Yes. Like you see <laughs> King Richard and Macbeth and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he he was nominated. He did not win. Um, right. But he also already has two Oscars. 
Right. So, you know, he'll, he'll live, I, I think, but I, I do mean, think it's been I, arguably, I think he should have a third, but that should have happened in 2016 for fences. Mm, fair, fair. And I have not seen King Richard, so I do not, I do not have an opinion in particular about that win. I liked Will Smith in it. Um, I would have liked to, I, and I know the Williams sisters were super supportive of it, but if, I, I would right. have liked the movie about the Williams sisters that was about the Williams sisters. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was kind of part why I was kind of on seeing it in some ways that I, I sort of wasn't as excited, but yeah. Though I guess it is also weird to make a, I don't know, there is something weird also about making films about people who are still very much alive and around. And involved. Yes. Especially, you know, that, that, yeah, it requires you to do a lot of kind of like speculation about the inner lives or like require them to share a lot about their inner lives, Mm -hmm. uh, which there is something a bit awkward about that for somebody who's, you know, yeah, right there and deeply involved. Yeah, very much so. But yeah, also, I mean, Denzel's do, been doing a lot with theater of late, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of his film choices are reflective of that. I mean, he directed Fences, which is based on the August Wilson play, and he right. basically filmed it as a play. Yeah. Like, it, it's, and, it's a movie yeah. that you feel, feel was, like, pulled from the stage, and then he produced Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is mm-hmm. also an August Wilson mm-hmm. play. And it very much feels like it was a play. And then, mm-hmm. you know, with this adaptation of Macbeth. Yeah. I felt very much like I was watching a theater performance. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's, you know, there's a little bit obviously in terms of, you know, staging. I mean, even like, you know, that you're sort of staying staging, right? I mean, there's a little bit in terms of the kind of filming and the different locations that obviously is kind of beyond what you could do for a theater production. But I think you could actually reproduce a lot of this film as a theater production. Very much so. Yeah. Which we can talk about a little more with um, yes. production design and all that. Yes. Yeah. Additional people in the cast: Alex Hussell as Ross, who uh, I I, I, just, I don't know what it is. Something about his face. I am convinced that I have seen him, but I apparently have not because the only thing that kind of popped up for me as even kind of vaguely familiar is that he's in the third season of His Dark Materials, which I have not yet watched. Neither have I. But I also feel like because it's on HBO Max, I probably should before they just arbitrarily get it. Good point. That is, uh, that should probably actually be moved up to uh, next on my, on my list. Yeah. And I have seen the first two seasons, so I can just uh, jump into the third. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, you know, but yeah, but I, I don't know why he looks so familiar to me, but we also have Corey Hawkins as Macduff, who was Stokely Carmichael and Black Klansman and Benny in In the Heights. And Dr. Dre in Straight Outta Compton. Oh, right. He's a, yeah. He's a really good actor. I like him a lot. Yeah. Yeah, no, I thought he was great. Also, Moses Ingram as Lady Macbeth, or sorry, Lady Macduff, I thought absolutely just like stole the show during her, you know, one scene. And what I know her from is that I finally got around to watching all of the Star Wars TV shows. And she is the third sister, Reva, in uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, which oh, she is so good. She was very, very, very good. Yeah. And of course, because Star Wars fans are going to Star Wars fan subject of a lot of racist backlash just for existing yep yep <laughs> but she was she was absolutely great in this one scene yeah yeah, yeah. no she just yeah really a like show stealing performance i was mm-hmm. very impressed yeah and i hadn't actually recognized her and, uh, and that i just loved it i you know had to make sure to look her up because as i said even though she's you know in precisely one scene i was like she you know i need to know if i have seen her in anything because she's so good 
Well, I mean, I didn't recognize her and I had seen both Macbeth, this Macbeth, I saw it when it came out mm-hmm. and I had seen Obi-Wan Kenobi already. Um, yeah. And I didn't make the connection. Yeah. I mean, I, I watched Obi-Wan Kenobi like a month ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and, and like, watched this, you know, rewatched this two days before recording. Yeah. And, yeah, still also did not make the connection. So yeah. I guess it's, you know, a very different costume and hairstyle and all of that. And a sign of a good actress. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think yeah. that's a bad thing that somebody doesn't, like, jump out to you as, like, I yep. know I know you. You are just this character. So. And also for Star Wars fans, uh, Catherine Hunter, who plays the witches, she is, well, she is Arabella Fig in Harry Potter, but she is also uh, Edie Karn in Andor, which was a performance I adored. Absolutely adored. Oh, very much so, because Cyril is such a little punk, and she just... Ah, she's just so good. She just... She, <laughs> so for this movie, she actually won the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Supporting Actress. Oh, cool. Well-deserved. I think it was like very, such she, an interesting she, performance. It, it is. I, I appreciated so much about it. Um, just the, how in-depth it was, the physicality, the androgynous yeah. quality of it, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I'd kind of like to talk about a little bit when we go into yeah. some of the more, more historical accuracies, just kind of talk yeah. about witches and how it's such a gender yes. situation. Well, but in some ways, I think is that that is interesting because we'll we'll talk about this, but that it's I would say more of a gendered accusation in the period when Macbeth was written than it is in the period when Macbeth would have taken place. Right, right. That'll be an interesting thing to discuss. We also have Brendan Gleason as Duncan briefly for while Duncan is around. And oh God, what is his name? I forgot to write it down as his son Malcolm, another Harry Potter alum uh very melling or as my notes say dudley dursley yes who i i just still kind of can't totally get behind liking him because i mean liking him as like yeah yeah no because dudley was such a little shit but yeah yeah and stuff he was the secondary villain in that charlie's theron movie the old guard Mm -hmm. on netflix where they played all those people Mm -hmm. right got some medieval bit in it because they're old as shit but yeah Mm -hmm. um (laughs) <laughs> I actually haven't seen that yet, but yeah, I do remember, I do remember seeing he was in that. Yeah. He's, he's been acting quite a lot. I just saw him in something else recently, but he's been showing up in a lot. Obviously as a Harry Potter actor, he got asked about JK Rowling and he, mm-hmm. he said the right thing. Good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's been nice to see that like most of the like younger cast members have. Yeah. Yeah. He was in The Devil All the Time, which was another Netflix movie. It's, it was a movie that wanted to be William Faulkner. And I finished it thinking, wow, this movie hates women. And then I texted my mm. best friend and I said, did you watch that movie yet? And she goes, yeah, that movie really hated women. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So mm. there are a lot of those movies. Great. I covered a lot of those movies. Yeah. Great cast. Can't recommend it. Mm. Fair. Yeah. A couple of other casting notes that I want to mention briefly who are not particularly large roles, but just to indicate that, you know, these people are worth mentioning is that, uh, so Stephen Root as the porter, I'm always very happy to see Stephen Root, good character actor. Very and good. Ralph Ineson, who I think genuinely might like win for number of appearances on this podcast at this point. I thought of that when he showed up, I thought, oh, it's Ralph Ineson again. Yeah, again. <laughs> again. <laughs> like I don't know what it is but like somebody must have just decided that like this man has a pre-modern face because yeah. like he's 
I mean, well, or not even his face all the time because he also is the uh, the titular Green Knight. Green Knight. I was gonna say he's the yeah, Green Knight. So I think it's actually see his face. The gravitas of his voice. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually trying to count right now how many movies of his you've covered on this. Because um, I can think offhand, even so, Green Knight. I just did the Willow TV show, which he's in. I've done Game of Thrones, and but it's also that I feel like there's like I don't even remember what they are. I feel like I'll have to look them up because I feel like there's like four or five other things where I'm like, oh, like Ralph Innocent is in this for ten minutes. Yeah. So first night. Yep. Yep. Uh, the Ridley Scott Robin Hood. Yep. And then yeah, everything that you just mentioned, the Green Knight. Uh, oh, the Northman. Yep. I think we're at seven. Yeah. I'm, oh, he's a voice in, oh, okay. Not yet, but I'm going, but he's going to be, he is uh, apparently in the second season of the Legend of Vox Machina, which I will be covering at some point. Oh, and he's the golden tiger in Catherine called Birdie. Yep. That's right. I did also just cover him in that. Yeah. Uh, so, he, so I think Ralph he absolutely in- wins. Ralph Innocent is the media evil MVP. He really is. And, you know, and even in the movies that are terrible, like he always, you know, puts on a good performance. Yeah, yeah. I liked him in The Witch, which is a little bit after your time period. Yeah, I feel like I can't totally justify The Witch, or at least that if I did, I feel like I'd like want to bring on, a you know, an Americanist to, you know, who knows yeah. more about it than I did. Um, right, right. Than I, I do, so. I don't think you can, yeah. But he was very, very good in that. Yeah really briefly so one of the murderers Mm -hmm. the taller one did two episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer as two different characters in very heavy makeup (laughs) but are they both like demonic sort of characters oh yeah yeah Mm -hmm. uh so his name's Brian Thompson in the very very first two-part pilot episode he plays Luke the master's henchman oh yeah. Hmm. And then in season two, he plays a big blue demon character called the judge. And that's the oh, yes. angel loses his soul. Yeah. 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 I remember that's the judge. Him. Yeah. That's him. Yeah. I mean, not, you would absolutely never recognize the judge in something else because. No, I had to hear his voice. Makeup. Yeah. I had to hear his voice. Like, wait a minute. I know that. That's that. Yeah. And it's, yep, it's <gasps> Brian Thompson. Oh, wow. Wow. Cool. Wow. So that's glad that you glad my, I made it. Yeah, that is my my final cast note. Well, with that, we can now move into the enumeratio or recap section where we go over some of the plot and other details of the film. We begin with uh there we actually begin, I feel like, with like Ralph Innocent and my because my very first like note in my handwritten notes is just, is he in this too? <laughs> <laughs> There has just been a battle. Um, This is, of course, one of the things, right, that kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, this is is something that was a stage play. And I actually kind of like that they kept this, that you have a lot of battles that are referenced and you see very little of them. And that's true for obvious reasons in the play. And I actually quite like that that was preserved in the film because I feel like it's very easy, especially in movies set in the medieval or medieval-ish past to be like, we need a big battle scene. And they're all kind of the same and they're all kind of boring. And I'm glad we didn't have it. I, I, and I think it's concerned that the audience will not be engaged with the story enough. So they need an action yes. break. I mean, I, I understand fully well that the, the point is to make money. This is, yes, this is a business, but also as a film goer, I don't really care if other people are, are 
need that action sequence. Yeah. And I personally tend to find most action sequences, especially most like big showpiece battles, I tend to find the vast majority of them sort of boring and kind of all the same. Yeah, like there's yeah, very oh, yeah. like there's very few examples of battle scenes that I find memorable. And I think most of them are in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I think that's fair. So I am I am glad that they, you know, made the decision to in fact just begin with essentially the the aftermath of the battle that we have learned that uh Macbeth and Banquo have been victorious over the Thane of Cawdor. The king is informed of this and is relieved. And uh, while Macbeth and Banquo are en route to the king, they meet the the witches. And one of the interesting choices in the film is that it is it is three witches textually, which are represented by a single actor who sometimes you just see her alone. Sometimes you see kind of creative things being done with the reflections such that it kind of looks like there are three like and they preserve the language of like referring to three and you know using plural pronouns etc oh yeah the, i mean that shot when you first see the witch and in it's you know one person and then two reflections yeah that's fantastic it's really cool it's a really yeah, cool shot it's, it's very visually striking and i think you know because the witch the, you know the characters of the witch is kind of you know they leave macbeth so unsettled mm-hmm. the way that they play around with them works incredibly well yeah, yeah. No, I think it's really interesting. The witches, of course, hail Macbeth as the future Thane of Cawdor and also inform him that one day he's going to be king and that one day Banquo is going to be the father of a line of kings, which is, of course, what sets all of the events in motion is that at first they're kind of very suspicious of the prophecy and they're like, yeah, yeah, fine, whatever. And then he is informed, uh, Macbeth is informed that he is in fact the Thane of Cawdor as the Thane of Cawdor is executed, which also I believe happens uh, off screen, right? The, you like hear a thud in the distance. Which is also effective. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In some ways I think like more effective than like uh, another execution scene. Right. Yes. And so, you know, at that point with the like, oh, huh, that first part of the prophecy came true quite quickly, he becomes intrigued. At the same time, uh, Duncan names his son Malcolm as the you know, Prince of Cumberland and therefore, you know, his presumed heir, which doesn't not make sense, obviously, but which Macbeth is like, hmm, and at this point uh, writes to his wife about this whole situation. She was very intrigued by this uh, this promise of prophecies. Mm-hmm. She very much seems, and I think this is in the play inherently, but also I think it's really brought out in Frances McDormand's performance. She really seems like she was just waiting for an excuse to really kind of like push forward, you know, some some kind of ambitions for uh, for for Macbeth, and therefore also for herself. Right, and I think that's kind of the appeal of the character whether you kind of you know just absolutely hate her and realize you know some of the things she does but the the appeal is how ambitious she is yes and you know i mean yeah obviously like she's you know a murderer or at least accessory to you know mostly i guess accessory to murder as opposed to active murderer but you know but in the context of her own time It's the kind of thing where men who do that much murdering often are not necessarily vilified. 
And so I think it is kind of worth that, you know, thinking about the the way in which like she is often, I think, represented as more of a villain in some ways, both because she's a woman and because relatedly, she's actually not the one doing the murdering. She's the kind of one behind the scenes egging Macbeth on. And that that also, I think, kind of is like kind of you like makes her more villainous in some people's eyes in some ways. Right. But that's all very gendered. Yeah. The fact that she can tempt him, the fight, the fact that she can lure him into doing something so terrible. That's the perception very much. Yeah. I'm sure some Shakespearean scholar has done some work on this. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Yes. I, I, you know, I will just say in advance, there's, you know, so much scholarship on Macbeth. I'm not a Shakespeare scholar. I was not going to sit down and read all of the extensive scholarship on Macbeth. So, you know, I am sure that I am saying plenty of things that other people who have much more expertise in this particular area have already said. Do you know the series that's on Netflix, Kunk on Britain? I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. She has an episode about Shakespeare where she says something like, school in Shakespeare's time is easier. Of course, he didn't have to learn Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and I, and I have taught Shakespeare, but I've like only specifically taught uh, the Merchant of Venice and the context, of course, is on anti-Semitism. So, oh, I'm going to have to do it this coming this May. Oh, well, we'll discuss. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a Jewish history survey. Oh, fun! I like teaching Merchant of Venice. Yeah, and I'm going to do a bunch of um, I'm, I'm going to talk about some of the pop culture references to talk about how these stereotypes about Jews have mm-hmm. perpetuated and permeated, and we've got a line about them here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. Which might, I'll let me send you actually, I'll, I'll send you also my solos for my Jews buddy and finance course. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. This one's yeah. called from the Bible to Broadway. I'm going to lean in on the Broadway thing with music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've done those like big surveys before, but yeah, in terms of like the pop culture stuff. Yeah. I like, I also did, I did Merchant of Venice and that, and, uh, hey, you know, the one about do, you. yeah, 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 I did. So I did that at IU and I've also taught it at Rhodes. Uh, so I've, <laughs> done that in a variety of different settings. And yeah, I end with talking about how we are seeing some of these same stereotypes in Harry Potter and Star Wars. Yeah, I'm going to have to end with Marjorie Taylor, Green, Kanye West, and Kyrie Irving. Yeah, yeah, I did actually end this. The last time I taught the course, it was uh, before that, uh, but I did end with talking about QAnon. Yeah, I'll, I'll text you one other thing about this when we're done. Yeah, so it's we'll discuss. Over. Yeah, yes. She talks Macbeth into fulfilling the prophecy very in a very active way by mm-hmm. killing the king. And the other thing I will note is that, I mean, this certainly also just reflects the fact that like they're great actors. It's a, you know, they're great performances, but they also like the way this is staged, like they have really good chemistry. Very, very. Um, and I, I, I think you're right about the staging, the, mm-hmm. the way the sets are, are set up. So I know Joel Cohen was inspired by a movie that you already covered, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. I hadn't read that, but that very much makes sense. And another movie that you and I covered, The Seventh Seal. Uh-huh. Also makes sense. Yeah. And then it reminded me of the Weimar film, the German film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, mm. because the sets in that movie, I mean, they use a little bit more color, which is interesting to say for a movie that came out in the Weimar period, but they tinted uh-huh. the black and white. Um, oh, interesting. The way the sets are designed, they keep closing in. Like oh, they huh. keep coming at an yeah. angle. And I felt that yeah. way about the sets here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At certain points, the shadows and the walls look like they're closing in on the character. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, which is very, which is very cool. Very much kind of reflects like the the mindset of you know the the Macbeths uh, in particular. I think, yeah, yeah. So their their Oscar nomination for production design was incredibly well deserved. Oh yeah, fully agree. Yeah. But I also just like I I really just like like the way the way that they act as a couple, like their like their kind of physical chemistry with one another. Like, you know, like you don't often necessarily say this, or at least not always necessarily say this about productions of Macbeth, but like, this was a, like watching Macbeth where I'm like, this is a couple that has a very good sex life. Yeah, no. And I've seen versions of it where it it, it almost feels like, you know, why are you married? Which, yeah, it can be very much. I mean, at this point, because the assumption is that marriage for political alliance. Right. So right. in that regard, they don't really have to have chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> But at the same time in this, I really appreciate that aspect that the, the two of them working, they're such dynamic actors on their own mm-hmm. and you can't help but watch them when they're separate, that putting them together. I mean, and that's what I meant when I said, you know, earlier, if you find out that Francis McNorman and Denzel Washington are going yeah. to, and you're going to watch it, then you find out that it's Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 No. And I, yeah. So I, as I said, I just like thought it's like so brilliant in terms of like, you can just like, you could just absolutely see like, oh yeah, no, of course, if she's like going to tell him to do something, of course he's going to do it. Like the, like the, these two are like into each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Mm-hmm. So he kills the King, puts his hand over his mouth and then uh, gives a nice, nice knife to, uh, to the neck. Oh, and I guess it's actually like, so he, he kind of takes it, he kind of like, then kind of like flees, sort of freaks out a little bit, leaves with the knives. And then Lady Macbeth goes back and says like, no, you've got to frame the guards who, uh, who have framed who she's gotten drunk. And, uh, you know, she's the one who then goes back and like takes the knives back and smears some blood on the drunk sleeping guards. Yeah. He can't even murder, right? You had one job <laughs> to do that. You had one job to do, buddy. <laughs> you know, which is also like very much reflective that she's like, well, if he can handle it, it's going to go well. Yep. You know, in more Shakespearean language. And, and you know, and I will note that the vast majority, if not all of the dialogue is just like original to the play. It is. I had to look it up, though, because it's been so long since I reread it. Yeah, I mean, at least I will say like, there were things I obviously recognized every line that like, I did not sit down and like read Macbeth and compare word for word for this. I did not have time, unfortunately, to do that level of preparation, but any line that I found interesting and chose to look up is all from Macbeth, the play. I have a little button um, that I got from the Globe Theater that says out damn spot out. I say (laughs) it's a good button. I also have a hoodie from the Globe Theater that quotes Henry VIII that says, hoods make not monks. <laughs> that is an excellent piece of merchandise. That's actually it's, really I, brilliant. I absolutely could not resist it. Like I did not have room in my suitcase for a hoodie, but my friend and I went and saw Tammy. Oh, you can't not buy that. At the Globe Theater. And I mm-hmm. saw, I have to do this. Yeah, no, you cannot not buy that. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Three cheers for the Globes souvenir shop it's it's yeah even if you don't see a play at the globe um just check out the merch yeah you can buy fake theater blood too yeah oh great yeah but yeah so you know he's he's done a slightly mediocre job of murdering and actually you know the the next day as well uh, he kind of has things set up right such that 
is it Macbeth and, or sorry, Macduff? And I keep saying Macduff, Macbeth instead of Macduff, uh, which is, you know, deliberately confusing. Macduff, Macduff, and who else comes in with him? Is it Banquo? Yeah. Yeah. So Macduff and Banquo, you know, show up and Macduff goes to like say hi and wake up the king. Of course, the king is dead. And uh, Macbeth then summarily executes the two guards, which, uh, you know, on the one hand, I guess, means that they can't talk. But on the other hand, is arguably suspicious. Yes. So it's it's like not arguably not a great move uh, since, you not know, given. Move. He's got to yeah. talk about it in the next scene. Yep. And he's like, oh, yeah, I just like, I just like got, I just got super carried away. It's like actually kind of reminiscent. I just rewatched Monty Python and the Holy Grail recently because I, because <laughs> I did, a, I offered a course on it. Um, it is kind of reminiscent of like Lancelot at the wedding that he just kind of like pops in and stabs everybody. Yep. That's kind of Macbeth's vibe in the scene. No, but so I actually think this is, this is the best part of Francis McDormand's performance in this scene where he's confessing that he killed these guards. Um, she doesn't have anything to say. She's just watching him. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. her reactions are so compelling to it. Yeah. And I think I think that's what really, really makes this performance is what she does when she doesn't have dialogue. And one of the reasons that I actually think it is a travesty that she was not nominated. Right. And I actually, and I think that's really saying something because Macbeth is, is one of the plays where I, I've always felt that has the best soliloquies. Yeah. Yeah. And she does so much with like, I mean, not that she doesn't do well with soliloquies, but that she also does like so much just like being present. Mm-hmm. Malcolm flees to England, which makes sense. Yeah. And Macbeth takes over as king. He also is uh, is concerned, therefore, as well about the fact that the next part of the prophecy, which has been now, you know, proven, you know, t- two out of three things have been proven true. Part three is, of course, that, uh, you know, Banquo will not be king, but that his children will. And he, you know, goes and arranges to have him and his son killed, which, okay, in the cunt, okay, it actually makes more sense historically in the, where, you know, most of the spoiler alert didn't happen. It actually, in the, in the actual play kind of doesn't make sense because, you know, Macbeth is an older man who seems to not have children. He has an, you know, a wife who seems like she is probably past childbearing age and is not, you know, indicating any interest in, you know, putting her away and remarrying or anything along those lines, you know, because they're they're very into each other. And also, you know, she's clearly running things. So it arguably kind of would make more sense for him to like adopt Benko's son. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. That just occurred to me that 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 really would have actually made much more sense as a plan (laughs) as opposed to like continuing on the murder spree. (laughs) I mean, he's not a logical character. No, no. And that's very, that very much is the point, right? Is that he is not a particularly logical character and that his grasp on logic increasingly gets lost because of, you know, guilt being in over his head, all sorts of things. Right, right. You know, again, very clearly, you know, his his wife is the one who kind of has her shit together. Yeah, very for much. much more of the play. And the other thing I will note uh, at this point is that one of the things that is a change, which comes out mostly in, you know, mostly not necessarily kind of verbally, is that one of the, I would say, kind of biggest changes is that Ross is given a much more important role. Right. I couldn't remember, um, but I thought it was, I thought that was the case. 
So he is not necessary. He is not at least textually identified. I don't know if this is something that's been done in other adaptations, but he is not textually identified as one of the murderers who goes after Banco and Fleance. Mm-hmm. But like there is like reference to like there being three, but he is not identified as one of them. Okay. Yeah. And there's also like another, like something else that we'll talk about, you know, in, in a bit that also is, uh, is an intervention that gives Ross more of a, an important role. I'm not entirely sure what the reason for that is, but I found it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it works just fine. Yeah. Macbeth is losing it. He's like at a banquet. He like, you know, starts hallucinating. He sees this like apparition of Banquo. There's like this bird that comes in and he's like freaked out about the bird. There's a lot of birds, by the way. There are a lot of, uh, of crows. I mean, you could say it's a murder of crows. Indeed, one could one could say not in not in the hall. It's just one crow, but usually it is in fact a murder of crows. It is. It's not. It's you know, in terms of the entire movie, rather than a cast, it's a murder of crows. Yes, yes. Which is, I assume that's why there they are crow. There are crows specifically. Yeah, I mean they're they're kind of creepy birds. Yeah, yeah. And they're they're meant to kind of signify creepiness and also they never forget anyone they've ever seen. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got we've got a lot of crows. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also like Lady Macbeth also is the one who like clearly like has her shit together <laughs> again, that he's like losing his mind and like running around and yelling at crows. And uh, and she like calmly walks up to the window and lets the crow out the window and the crow flies away. <laughs> I know. I was kind of thinking, you know, you think about someone like Denzel Washington who's been working for 40 years, 40 some years, and then you still see him like, fake fighting a crow yeah yeah <laughs> with nothing there and you know <laughs> I don't know it's just it was kind of this this like momentary disconnect like I never really thought I was never really taken out of it to the point where I was thinking Francis and Denzel but at that moment it's like mm-hmm. this point in Denzel's career he could probably get away with not pretending that there's a flying object in front of him Right. And so like, good, good for him that I feel like he like he leans into it, right? Of the like, I'm going to like, fake fight a crow. Yeah, yeah. To to really lean into the madness. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, she basically like does it. She's like, Oh, don't worry. He's been like this since he was a kid. It's totally it's totally (laughs) fine. (laughs) And everybody's like, is it? But like, I don't know. I mean, they, they actually kind of see that some like at that point, like they're basically like, oh, okay. If you say so. Yeah. yeah. It is fairly gradual that you do see increasingly the, the nobility uh, kind of being like, hmm, this seems like a not great situation. Somewhat ironically, there are a bunch of birds making noises outside my door right now. I can't hear them. So I don't know that they'll, that they'll make it onto the podcast, but it would be fun if they did. It would be. They're geese. Um, oh, mm. Which are also creepy birds. They're also assholes. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes them creepy. Like, what right. make like crows have a creepy vibe. Geese will actually harm you. Yeah, exactly. I, I try to stay far away from them, but sometimes I, I open my door and there's like 15 there. <laughs> oh, God. That's hard I, to find. I, I live behind a pond. That actually, I would like, I would like get my sword out. <laughs> and like, if there was like a goose, if like a goose comes into the house, like, then it's like, oh, yeah, no, you fight that. Yeah, yeah. Macbeth then has a uh, a visit from the witches who conjure up a uh, a vision of the the young Fleance who tells him to he tells him to beware of Macduff, which right. 
you know, it turns out to work out, uh, that he shall be king until the great Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane Hill, and that he shall be harmed by no man born of a woman. Which obviously is like one of those, like, nah, that's a loophole there. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. He then also, this is when he's like, all right, beware of Macduff. Got it? Yep. Macduff has already fled, but he then has people go to his house and uh, murder his entire family, which is a, you know, cool, chill thing to do. That's definitely going to make everybody be on your side. And uh, so this is, you know, Lady Macduff's one scene, which uh, mostly has her interacting with their son. It is just, ah, it's just such a show-stealing scene. She's so good. It is. I mean, and it goes from one extreme to the other. It's this really nice relationship with her son and this this very warm relationship. And then all of a sudden, murder. Uh-huh. And also that like, oh, like, it's like, oh, like, she's funny, like, she has this line and, you know, this is in the play, but I feel like it's still she delivers it especially well. They're like talking about the fact that Macbeth, Macduff has ditched them. And, uh, you know, and he's like, and she's like, oh, you have no father. And he's like, well, you have no husband. And she's like, yeah, husbands, you can get 20 of those at market. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Uh, but yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah, just like such a great performance. Mm-hmm. They get murdered. Everybody gets murdered. This is also where we also start to see Lady Macbeth also losing it, which is one of the, like, obviously it's necessary plot wise, but it's in some ways, one of those things that I've always found in some ways, not a hundred percent convincing just in terms of the kind of original play. Right. And I think it's, I, I think that Shakespeare kind of got caught in that trap of that women need to seek forgiveness yes for their wrongs with whether it makes sense or not because I I don't agree it it always to me and this was in reading the play and I remember sitting in in my 12th grade English class reading the play it felt a little too abrupt yeah yeah and and it still is I mean I think Frances handles it very very well Mm -hmm. Um, you know she does she handles it very very well but yeah, I, I think that's more gendered conventions, gendered expectations coming through yes. in the play, rather than sticking with with what would have been more true to the character. Yeah, especially because so, I mean, Macbeth, first of all, is never as into the murdering as she is. And his descent is also, I think, more gradual hers, as we said, right, it's very abrupt that she goes from being like raw, raw murder to out damned spot without much in between. Right. I I fully agree that that's basically a kind of 17th century gender problem as opposed to something that's really kind of comes out with the character. And, and, you know, and and I think Frances McDormand absolutely like does, you know, does as well as one can with that, I would say, kind of inherent flaw. She does. And this is very much a very faithful adaptation. Yes. Yes, and it's a great scene. It is. It it, it very much is. Um, but it is. It's also not an adaptation that's really going to try to change certain things about it, which I, uh, yeah, I think a lot of Shakespeare adaptations really try to do. And sometimes yeah. it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just. Sometimes all I want the way, and I'm going to sound incredibly pretentious saying this, but the way that Shakespeare is meant to be experienced is through performance. Yeah. That's the intention of it. So I don't necessarily need a huge production so much as I want to see it Mm -hmm. performed well. Yeah, agreed. That's what I got out of this. 
Yeah, I did as well. And I, and I do think there is something to be said for, you know, for having it be a relatively faithful adaptation, right? I mean, that's obviously, you know, is a choice one could make would be to insert scenes or insert character moments to, you know, fix problems that one sees the play, but that's very much not what they're interested in doing in this particular adaptation, which I think is a perfectly, you know, reasonable choice. And I think there is something to be said for it. Um, And that leaves that challenge there for the watch for people who are watching it. Yeah. I mean, it can go the other way. I mean, I, I, I say this with no irony or shame whatsoever. My favorite film adaptation of Shakespeare is 10 things I hate about you. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes so many changes. Yeah, yeah, which like, but like, it's not a bad thing. No, I mean, particularly not for that play. Uh, right, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think like the more you can change about that particular play, the better. It's the only acceptable adaptation I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, because you have to change a lot to get past the just like intense inherent misogyny of that play. I saw that play at the Globe. And when she comes out and says that she's going to submit to him, the mm-hmm. audience applauded and I was appalled. Yeah. I mean, I think on terms of spectrum, because we have a faithful mm-hmm. adaptation, straightforward adaptation yes. here. And then we have the, the, the right. one that certainly takes some liberties, but they both work incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah. And that play is, by the way, like top of my list for when they're, you know, when there's like all the like theory, like Shakespeare, is it Shakespeare theories? Every time one of them is like Shakespeare is a woman. I'm like, have you read Taming of the Shrew? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so meanwhile, then also uh, Ross visits England and uh, Macduff is like, how's, how's my family doing? And, you know, he's like, well, about about that one. Not, yeah. not great. Not amazing. And also the, uh, the other kind of like costuming thing that I will note is that most of the costuming is, I think, kind of like relatively sparse in a lot of ways, right? Like they, the men are often kind of mostly in like a kind of relatively simple leather armor, which is like actually as far as things go for the 11th century, like actually not the worst Yeah, compared yeah. to, you know, like it's at least like not full plate armor, which is obviously wrong for that period. So I have an appreciation of that. That's another way to me that it feels like a theater production. Yeah, yeah. The sparse costuming that can be changed quickly, that can be kind of interchanged, that that really doesn't require an enormous amount of adornment. Mm-hmm. You can just jump yeah. out on stage and, and say your lines. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that one of the, I would say, kind of most striking individual costumes is that Ross has this like whole, you know, tunic situation with sleeves that are epic. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like these sleeves extend down to the floor. They are intense. Yeah, yeah. I wonder who their costume designer was. Oh yeah, good good question. But yeah, costume design. I I, I appreciated how sparse it was. Yeah. And this, of course, leads into the uh, the fulfillment of the various uh, the later round of prophecies that Macbeth received from the witches. Uh, Macduff vows his revenge. Malcolm starts his process of raising an army with the he's uh, with the help of the English, and uh, part of their uh, and for their approach, they cut down a bunch of branches from the woods uh, and uh, use them as camouflage to kind of march on his castle in such a way that it kind of looks like the the forest is coming to the castle. 
And that they do, yeah, actually kind of have, have staged, uh, you know, one, once again, you know, they could make a decision to like have a ton of big battle scenes here and they don't, which I think is a good thing. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree. Lady Macbeth is, well, and this is actually implied, which is also interesting. You know, typically she is, you know, said to have killed herself. It is implied that uh, she is in fact killed by Ross. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Which that is, another, yeah. And I couldn't remember if that was in the play or not. I meant to. It is not now. Yeah. I meant to click. There is. Yeah. That I I believe in terms of just reading the text, there is no reason to believe she did not commit suicide. Mm -hmm. And that I do think is interesting in terms of that. You still have the scene, right. Where she, you know, is guilt stricken and just kind of losing it. But that she doesn't actually, you know, necessarily on her own take this step of suicide, I actually do think is interesting in terms of, uh, I mean, I could see the argument, at least for that being more true to her character in that, like, I don't know, like, she kind of seems like, yeah, maybe she's like not doing great with this, but like, I don't know, she kind of seems like she'd get over it. I think so, too. I think so, too. If it weren't for that scene where she's kind of, you know feeling guilty over it you know if Shakespeare had kind of stayed true to the character that he he was originally writing then I think it would make more sense for someone to murder her than for her to take her own right life. yeah so um, I so I do think that's an interesting element certain 17th yeah. century conventions of right. paying the ultimate penance of taking her life yes for her yes. actions and that's not really necessary Right. Which is, of course, you know, the kind of added, you know, the added element, of course, and that, you know, in, in the context of kind of like 17th century ideology is that's also a sin. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That, you know, su- like suicides are not supposed to be, you know, buried in consecrated ground. Like that, that certainly is yeah, an interesting element as well. Macbeth has a couple of duels. Uh, I can't remember who the first person that he fights, the person that he fights that he beats is. I cannot remember who that is. Do I remember? <laughs> it's like the duel that's like in the throne room. I don't know. One, one of the nobility. Yes. He's like pretty young, I think. Yeah, the young guy. Shit, I couldn't remember his name. Yeah, well, I can't remember his name either, but that's fine. The comment that I wanted to make is that I think it's, I think that's also a scene that like the way it's staged is really cool and that like it's clear, right, that he's like, you know, older. He maybe doesn't necessarily kind of like move as fast as he used to, but he is still like, a force to be reckoned with, like in terms of like hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, definitely. Or, you know, sword to sword combat. Yeah, and I think that's more the point of it. Yeah. And you know, and I and I yeah, and I thought that was very cool that like he you can like see his like, you know, like physical like power and skill in that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. We then of course have the duel with Macduff, uh, during which Macduff is like, ah ha ha on the um you know, I cannot be killed by any man of woman born. And he's like, uh, C-sections. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, of course, like this is exactly, this is also, you know, exactly where like Tolkien gets his, uh, you know, like Eowyn's like, ah, not a man. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> the like little, like, lo- like loopholes in the, uh, in the prophecies. It, that's, that's actually the Eowyn reference is exactly what I thought of. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's, you know, it's like, it's, this is like, this is clearly where he got that from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am no man. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, is still, still satisfying as hell. Oh yeah. They were coming this year is the 20th anniversary of, of Return of the King. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and it still holds up. 
It does. It does. Also, I have I have told this on another episode of this podcast, but we'll still tell it again. I have a dog toy of the Witch King of Angmar for Opie. That's fantastic. My friend has a and, cat in Oh. So every time Opie goes after her Witch King of Angmar toy, I go, that's right. You are no man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she appreciates that. I'm sure she does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she is. She is nomad in multiple ways. She is both female and a dog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the bill. <laughs> Macduff wins. He beheads him. I think also we, I think also we do not actually quite see the beheading. We see him like, or actually we see him. Ross. We right? don't see the beheading, but we see him walking down the hallway with the head. Yes, right. Which, and then uh, this is the scene that reminded me of the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. Interesting. Well, when they're uh, on like the ramparts, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because of the way they are, and it's kind of like I don't know if you've ever been there, but when you walk through it, you're like walking through a bunch of stele and they kind That's of right. weave in and out. So at some point mm-hmm. it feels like you're more submerged than you are, and sometimes it feels like you're coming out of it. Oh, interesting. Um, they probably didn't want me to think of the Holocaust when I watched this. Right. But it is interesting, like architecturally and the way that there are, I feel like a lot of Holocaust memorials that kind of choose this like very sort of like clean, sterile architecture. Yes. Which is sort of also what they went with for this. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure totally what's behind that choice for Holocaust memorials. Um, You probably have more thoughts about this than I do. Yeah, there are books about it. Yeah, I, I have been to the Berlin Holocaust Memorial, but only once and well. The Holocaust memorials that I tend to remember are the ones that I tend to find in some ways kind of upsetting or reprehensible, like upsetting isn't problematic and reprehensible. Yeah, like I can I can understand that. That makes sense. Yeah, like the one in Boston where like, I don't know if this is deliberate or not, but like the like smoke from the train comes up like while you're in there and it's, oof, oof, I, I mm. no, that's bad. Yeah. Like, yeah. I will say that that is bad. Yeah, no, that I hate. Uh, and I think in the Austrian one where the text says atrocities were committed, we're not going to say by whom, it's a secret. No, but and I'm not defending that. Um, but German as a language can be very passive. Yes, but at least somebody should have thought that one through for the English translation. Yes, I mean, and there is, yeah, yeah, I know, I agree, I agree. And also, if you go to the ones in Germany, they will absolutely say the, um, yeah. the victims of Nazism. Yeah, yeah, they, like that's, I think that is why it's striking, is that like the ones, the ones that I've seen in Germany, like, do not do that. So like, it's no, not, they're, they're very, it's not very just blunt. the German language. Um, I will say the translations on Polish, the English translations on Polish monuments in Polish text are are just atrocious. Mm. It's, I, I'm reasonably sure they used Google Translate on most of them. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, and I, oh, dear. My and I were walking through like, you know, that they wouldn't have to pay us that much and we'd clean it up for them. You should volunteer that. I should volunteer that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it reminded me of the Holocaust Museum, but then Macduff walks mm-hmm. through with, with Macbeth's head. Mm-hmm. And we also have the reveal that Fleance is, in fact, still alive. And uh, Ross, you know, grabs him and uh, spirits him away. And uh, a a murder of crows appears. I guess it's like a reminder that, like, yes, this is part of the prophecy that will be fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. And Mm -hmm. then King Malcolm. Mm Mm-hmm. 
with that, uh, we can get into the Vera at Falso, or uh, what did they get right and wrong? And the advanced thing that I'm just going to note for both this and the Historia at Veritas is that um, a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about in terms of like things that are, you know, I don't know, wrong, are things that are wrong insofar as like Shakespeare just did not give a shit about history. Shakespeare's history reminds me of Shane Austen's History of England. <laughs> which I don't know if you've read. I have not, but I have heard that it is certainly like not, well, not how we might traditionally write history today as, as us as historians. No, because it's an opinion piece. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's how people wrote history, right? Until, yeah, right. I mean, you know, now it is still kind of an opinion piece, but, you know, we sort of pretend it isn't. We pretend um, it isn't with language. Um, and she, yeah. she, she certainly is of the age where she does not have to do it. Um, so right. it's very entertaining. But that, that is what, what Shakespeare's history reminds me of, right. which I find endlessly amusing because there is literally a genre of Shakespeare, Shakespeare's histories. Oh, yeah, exactly. And like yeah. all of them are like ridiculous and bullshit. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this is, you know, as we'll talk about one of the examples of that, but yeah. we'll get into that. Uh, so uh, first of all, that, though, I do want to yeah. say this is a very nicely compact adaptation of Shakespeare. Yes, it is. Yeah. I think for every movie you and I have talked about, this is not the shortest, but this is the most succinct we've done the summation part. Yeah, because it is, I mean, it is kind of very, it's like very straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because Um, the Ingmar Bergman, I think like 90 minutes. Right. Um, Yeah. We've talked about it for ages. I I, know there's a lot to say. Uh, I mean, it's also very like sparse in terms of setting, right? And I, I will note that, you know, the, the setting is not particularly medieval. I, I don't think it's supposed to be, uh, which is, you know, a choice and is perfectly fine. And like, it feels very much like the kind of thing that, you know, like would not be out of the place in a stage play, right? Where you kind of just have this like sparse black and white, you know, setting with like just very kind of like clean lines. Yeah, yeah. You know, so as I said, not particularly medieval, but I think it kind of makes choice in this context Um, and not a lot of color. But I think, you know, that functions more to give a kind of sense of like timelessness as opposed to it being the like, it was very gray back then because it was the Dark Ages. It actually reminded me a little bit of the Green Knight in terms of kind of how the scenery looms. Yeah. um, And kind of the atmosphere created by it. Obviously, they did a lot more with that they 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 mm-hmm. they were of the more is more rather than less is more yes cool as thought but there was something i found very reminiscent particularly in terms of some of the visual effects mm-hmm. um in moving towards this or rather moving through the scenery and kind of like i mean they're real locations they were doing in the green night but in some cases it almost felt like they were walking through a a, a soundstage set yeah. Um, very clear this is a soundstage set movie. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and it's also just even things like, you know, the, at some point there are like ruins and the angles of the ruins, I feel like fundamentally don't make any sense from a perspective of like how ruins actually happen. But, you know, it's like, like creates like full lines and angles and shadows and like is very clearly deliberate. And I think that's like a perfectly fine choice to make and, you know, would be a very different film if you know they made like a realistic castle setting with a lot of tapestries right and i was thinking actually the orson welles version oh i've, I've actually not seen the orson welles version 
Yeah. Wells did one. I want to say it was 48 and it's in black and white because it's 48. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. But that, that reminded me of, I think that that's kind of the, let's say the cousin of it, but he also tried to mm-hmm. do more with like a, no, this is a medieval setting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. so, as I said, like that's, that was just very clearly not what, you know, Joel Cohen and his cinematographers were interested in, which I think is completely fine. Yeah. So, I mean, and I, I, I like the sparseness here. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really worked. Uh, and I like that with uh, the costuming as well, as you've already talked about a little bit. Um, yes, and I will yeah, say I found out who that was. It was, oh, um, yes. her name is Mary Zofres and she has worked with the Cohen brothers a lot. She did Hail Caesar, um, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which also has Ralph Innocent, by the way, mm-hmm. Inside Lewin Davis, uh, True Grit with them, A Serious oh, Man after yeah. reading. But she has also done La La Land and more recently Babylon. Oh, huh. And that's like a very, that's a very kind of interesting variety of things that require a lot of like very different things in terms of costuming. Very different. Yeah. 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 Huh. Cool. But also, I mean, in terms of this costuming, you have to design differently to film in black and white. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Edith Head, legendary costume designer, was known for wearing those sunglasses. The Edna Mode character in The Incredibles is based off of her look. Oh, um, cool. So she wore the glasses, but they were blue tinted. And that was so she could see what the costumes would look like filmed in black and white because she knew she had to choose colors oh. that look good. So whatever Mary's offers was doing for this, she had to do it knowing that whatever it, she picked would have to be filmed in black and white and look good. That's really cool. Yeah. And I also will say along the costuming, this is actually something uh, kind of in favor of the the sort of medievalism of the uh, of the production, is that I actually kind of like that Lady Macbeth, like before, like pre being queen, has like very simple clothing. I think it really does kind of like emphasize the fact that, and the people in general have very simple clothing. But like I think it does emphasize the fact that like clothing is very expensive in this context. Like you don't necessarily, you know, wear super fancy garb when you are just like, or like at home with the servants. Right, right. Uh, even if you are a member of the nobility. And in terms of filming also, like, I think it is very cool that like they, they then kind of have that change marked in her attire in particular that she has this like brocade garment. And I think it really like the the material chosen, I think it really kind of is one that, while in black and white, it allows you to use texture to indicate that this is like a much fancier dress, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great touch. Yeah. Very cool. I think at this point, uh, I want to kind of talk about a couple of things, which I think are just kind of sort of interesting in terms of thinking about, you know, Shakespeare and Shakespeare in some ways as, you know, talking about a period, which is not his own, again, with the caveat that, you know, Shakespeare cares even less than most modern people adapting medieval films about, you know, like doing medieval films about like historical accuracy. Right. One of these has to do with uh, magic and witchcraft, where I think in a lot of ways, the the concern and anxiety about witchcraft is much more reflective of 17th century concerns than 11th century ones. Right. I mean, 17th century is really where, where accusations of witchcraft are coming a lot more into the fore. Yes. Um, and of course that, you know, as, as I'll talk about more in a moment, uh, this play is very reflective of the fact that it is uh, written and uh, staged under, you know, for the first time under the reign of King James the uh, first of England, James the sixth of Scotland. 
And one of the kind of elements of that is the fact that like James was really, really anxious about witches. Like he was convinced that like witches are trying to murder him personally, constantly. (laughs) And so like, to some extent, like that's why there's like witches is because he's like, witches are a big problem, James. But in an 11th century context, like witchcraft is not presented as a major threat. And I do think this is interesting as well. So you brought up the fact that the witch slash witches, the way that they kind of stage this performance, they're relatively androgynous figures. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Catherine Hunter has actually performed kind of against gender norms. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm remembering correctly, she's done Richard III on stage. Oh, cool. Oh, that actually sounds really fascinating. I would love to see that. The thirds. Yeah. Uh Oh, I would love Um, to see that. That's really interesting. Like, I don't know if it's recent. I can't really necessarily say it's a trend because I don't know British theater that well. But there was also recently a Glenda Jackson version of Lear on stage. Oh, that's right. I think I heard about that. Yeah. 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 So Catherine Hunter did Richard III at the Globe in 2003. Oh, God, that I, I would love, wow, I would love to see uh, a, a filmed version of that production. Oh, that's, huh. She is 65. I honestly would have thought she was somewhat older. Yeah, no, she's, she's, yeah, I looked that up myself. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Glenda Jackson, I think, did Lear Lat a couple, couple of years ago, actually. Also, I just looked her up and uh, she is of Greek background and uh, has a name that was changed because she knew nobody would ever correctly pronounce her actual name, which I'm going to acknowledge in advance. I'm about to almost certainly mispronounce, which is Ekaterini Hedipateras. Yeah, I, I saw that too and, and didn't want to attempt it and mess up. Yeah, so my my apologies that I am almost certainly have pronounced that incorrectly, but did just want to kind of note the fact that like, ah, that this is uh, this is a stage name. If you ever do something where you need German, Yiddish or Polish pronunciation, I'll do that. Yes, yes. Uh, and, you know, I, I do the other side of the Mediterranean. So give me a romance language and I'm fine. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Greek Greek is not my my area. Um, yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to note in terms in particular of her androgyny is that I think that's interesting in terms of putting things back into its sort of 11th century context is that in a sort of earlier medieval period, when we kind of talk about magic use, it's actually very often something that's more likely to be gendered male, as opposed to the 16th and 17th century witchcraft accusations, which tend to be targeting women. Right. And I think that if you look at popular culture and depictions of magic, I mean, the obvious one, and you've covered this, and Ralph Innocent was also in an episode, Merlin. Yes, right. That Merlin is the, you know, the quintessential magic user. And in fact, all of the, I believe pretty much all of the women magic users in the Arthurian tradition are trained by Merlin. Right. And and he is celebrated. He's a hero, Merlin. But then you go, you know, further in and if it's a woman, then she's, you know, a crone, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even with the, you know, and even the magic users, you know, who are not, ne- and in the earlier period, even the magic users who are not necessarily so celebrated still do, in fact, tend to be men. So that the Theophilus legend, so it's, you know, one of these like miracles of the Virgin Mary legend. And it's this, you know, guy who, you know, makes this deal with the devil, uh, basically to get a promotion. And then, you know, eventually like repents and Mary helps him out and all of that. Yeah. But, you know, he makes this deal with the devil uh, actually through the intervention of a Jewish magician 
who is also, you know, a male Jewish magician. So that in this context, right, like magic tends to be associated with learning that is generally less accessible to women than to men. Yeah. Now I'm wondering though, how much of it, okay. So my theory on this and I, I, you know, my, my extent of early modern history is through the lens of reproductive health, Mm -hmm. um, abortion and miscarriage. And this is the same time when people were really starting to be prosecuted, not just persecuted, but prosecuted for those crimes. And it's all a form of social control. Mm -hmm. Um, and how to control women's bodies and how to control women's behavior. And I think that witchcraft is largely also, you're seeing a similar trend there as well. Mm -hmm. And I will say also a kind of interesting piece of that too, is that it's also right around the same period that we also see kind of like university educated male doctors increasingly trying to claim a monopoly over the medical profession and in particular over the care of women's bodies. Yeah, no, and that is that's that's certainly true. And actually, I was going to wonder if it's also a little bit of kind of that more enlightened age, quote unquote, enlightened, because I think there's some there's Mm -hmm. needs to be some pushback to that. That's also about controlling populations. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, yeah. But no, I think absolutely the rise of medical medical community and trying Mm -hmm. to prohibit women from doing that. I'm thinking of Barbara Ehrenreich's work on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I was thinking of uh, of Catherine Park's work on uh, on this, which is mostly kind of like 15th, 16th century. So like kind of looking at it a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. I believe. So yeah, but yeah, so I think that's yeah, definitely all a kind of part of this, you know, this transition. And yeah, I think I don't know if it was deliberate or not, but I think the the choice to represent the witches as this kind of very androgynous figure kind of fits interestingly into that history. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's a great choice. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And also I think like ideas about gender, I think are really interesting in this play. And so one of the things, you know, this is just something to kind of note in general is that there is often an assumption that ideas about gender fluidity are relatively new when in fact, that's very much not the case. And one of the things that I think is really cool, like textually about this play that, you know, is like something else that you can kind of point to is like the just very constant, you know, way in which uh, Lady Macbeth for herself and also like Macbeth talking about her, like uses very masculine imagery to describe herself. And like you said, I mean, it's all dialogue taken from the play. Yeah, yeah. But yes, yeah, so that is all stuff that Yano yeah, is is in this adaptation, but that yeah, every every single line of that is, you know, taken straight from Shakespeare. And so that's very much like something that is part of Shakespeare's text. And that, you know, this is not uncommon in the pre-modern world. It is also not something it's you know, and I mean one of the good examples of this actually is that, you know, Queen Elizabeth the first also used like masculine imagery to talk about herself. Mm-hmm. But it also uh, went the other direction as well, that uh, there are also, I mean, the kind of big example of this that Carolyn Bynum has talked about in her work is um, the ways in which uh, male ecclesiastics often used maternal imagery to describe themselves. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? And that is always, it's kind of like language that, you know, to some extent kind of reveals that there are particular qualities that tend to be associated with kind of gender essentialist assumptions in people's minds, but that there's also this kind of real comfort in then using that uh, that terminology and that language, using feminine terminology to talk about men and using masculine terminology to talk about women. Yeah, I've read Carolyn Bynum, but I don't remember what I read her for. 
Holy Feast and Holy Fast is the one that I feel like everybody has, or at least should read. I might've read the introduction for something. Yeah. Lyndall Roper is actually the historian whose work I was thinking of in terms of witchcraft. Mm, um, okay. That reflects on society, but um, yeah. that's in a particularly German context. Another thing that I think is interesting is like the extent to which like they are fairly casual about Macbeth's quote infirmity that later Macbeth is just like, yeah, this is just like a thing he's had since he was a kid. And everybody's like, oh, okay. If you say so. And I like that in terms of like that, I, I've been kind of thinking a lot about this recently and it's come up in some other things that I've covered that people often kind of have an assumption that disability kind of didn't exist in the middle ages or that like anybody who had a disability was kind of like shunted off somewhere or killed immediately. And so I think this like, you know, casualness about somebody like having what could be represented as some kind of like cognitive disability that people are very kind of just casual about it essentially until it involves him murdering a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I liked that acceptance. Yeah. Except for the danger. Yeah. Right. And again, and, and that's when it becomes a problem is when he starts to murder people. Yeah. Yes. And, and I would say that actually is like true of, you know, of other like examples of real, like late medieval, early modern Kings is that, you know, it's not a problem that they have some kind of cognitive disability until that is like kind of actively affecting their ability to rule. Which yeah, like yeah. sometimes it kind of doesn't when, you know, especially if like you have kind of like good, good people around you. Mm-hmm. Finally, before we move into the Historia at Veritas, I uh, did just want to make sure we talked about the line. This is, of course, in the original play that in terms of uh, a kind of, you know, ingredients for the cauldron, it includes the liver of blaspheming Jew, as well as nose of Turk and Tartar's lips. Uh-huh. So, you know. This is, I will just note, first of all, really unpleasant and very much a sign of, you know, Shakespeare as being very much somebody who is, you know, not so great in terms of talking about people who are, you know, the the other in some way that Shakespeare, like, does not do well in general with race. He does not do very well with Jews. Shakespeare, I will note, by the way, has almost certainly never met a Jew, since there are not really Jews in England at this particular time. No, but I'm sure he thought if he saw one, he would know it. I'm sure he did, yes. I'm sure he thought that all Jews looked a very specific way. I, I, and I'm, I can picture exactly what he thought that was. Yep, yep. yep. And just to kind of, honestly, it's probably, it's kind of surprising that it's not the Jews' nose. Isn't... <laughs> I had the same thought. <laughs> uh, got the liver instead. Uh, yeah. And the Jew is also the only one who uh, gets the extra description that he is a blaspheming, but that we do have, you know, all of these people, right? It's like, you know, it's not like the liver of a, you know, a nice Englishman. It's uh, the liver of these people who I think are really being kind of dehumanized as, you know, their, their disembodied body parts are being listed here alongside, you know, goats, goats, gall of goat and... A tiger's chadron? I actually don't know what that is. I forgot to look it up. I'm sure it's nothing good. Yeah, probably not. There's a finger of a birth-strangled babe whose identity is not uh, known otherwise. Yeah. And yes. that, that, that is quite a commitment to the source material. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, I actually would have considered uh, ditching this particular life. Joe Cohen's Jewish? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, so yes, like given that I'm certainly not going to like, you know, accuse Joel Cohen of anti-Semitism. No, um, no. Um, also, but, he, he, I mean, the, he and his brother did arguably one of the most Jewish movies of all time with a simple man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I think that there is something to be said for not shying away from the fact that Shakespeare was a shitty person. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Right, that like part of this tradition is racism and anti-Semitism. Right, but it also comes without commentary because it's such a small right. line. So it's different than if yes. you portrayed it in The Merchant of Venice and you actually right. did commentary on how he portrays Shylock. Whereas this yeah. is just liver from a blasphemous Jew. W- what the hell does that mean? There's no commentary to it. We just, he, the line is said. And along with the line about um, the nose of the Turk and the Tartar's lips, and then mm-hmm. we move on. Yeah, and it's—I mean—it's a kind of like it's like it's like a blink and you miss it kind of line, uh, right? Like I—I I don't think I noticed it the first time I saw this movie. No, I rewound it this time. Yes, I thought. Wait, did I hear that right? And I remember it from the play because it stood out then. Yeah. And of course, it's a lot different when you're actually reading and following along than when mm-hmm. you're watching the movie. But in this right. case, I actually rewound to make sure that I was hearing it correctly. Yeah, um, which I did. Yeah. But yeah, I think like you can absolutely confront the, that Shakespeare was anti-Semitic and that he was racist. Mm-hmm. And we should, we should have that yeah. commentary and we should challenge material like that. No one is sacred, but in this case, it's not presented with the commentary necessary. Yeah. And I think I agree. I think that that does make the difference that given that they were not going to do that, that there's something to be said for not having included that line since they, yeah, since they don't have the space to discuss it. I mean, there are so many other things they could have done. It could have been like the liver from, you know, a blasphemous rooster. It, it makes it, it it's right. as illogical. Right. Yeah. That you, you could, you could change the problematic parts of that line. And I'm sure you could find something that scans perfectly fine. And like very few people would even notice. Yeah. Yeah. There is something to be uh, to be said for for that. I will also note, as a fun fact, that if we are uh, going into the 11th century context of uh, Macbeth, there uh, would not have been Jews in England. And also, actually, I don't think you really would have used either the term Turk or uh, Tartar. That I think actually those are those are both both terms that you uh, you wouldn't really have used until 13th century early, I believe. And certainly that would not have been familiar to anybody in 11th. Like, I think, I think Tartar, at least I think like is not in use at all until later. And I think regardless, I don't think either of those terms would have been like meaningful to people in England in the like early to mid 11th century. Right. I wonder, and I'm thinking actually back to a class on medieval history that I took as an undergrad. It doesn't matter what it is so much as it is the outsider. It matters that it's right. So even if you don't know the term, like well okay well they're not english so right and you know i mean it is also notable right that you have you know you have the jew and then you have you know the like turk is also a term that is kind of like an umbrella term to refer to muslims in shakespeare's context yeah so yeah which you know would not would not have been earlier but is of course you know that you know so that that is essentially you know what he's talking about right he's talking about people who are being defined as you know racial and religious others with you know the boundaries between those two things in this context being quite fluid and Mm -hmm. that yeah they get to they get to go in the the soup so the 
first recording use of Tartar was in the 13th century. That's what I thought. Yeah. And, yeah. and so Turk, I think like as a term is around earlier, but I just don't think it would have been like one that would occur to your average person in England. Right. Right. But it does in 16th century England. Yes. Yes. And it's, you know, liver above a blaspheming Jew though. Uh, there, there were not Jews in England in the 11th century, but there was certainly nasty comments on Jews. Yeah. Yeah. That you still have that in like early medieval and early medieval literature, they still like can say nasty things about the Jews, even though they have absolutely never met any. They've never met any, never had one on their, never, never had one on their shores in their lifetime. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But they still hate them. Yep. Bless them. Well, I mean, I'm sure to them, they must have been expelled for a reason. (laughs) Right. I mean, by Shakespeare's time, right. That they're like, ah, yes. uh, you know, they deserve it. And, yeah. you know, in the earlier medieval, you know, in the like early, uh, like in an 11th century context, you know, those, those guys killed Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's just like the kind of like uncritical default, you know, bla- blaspheming Jews. Like that's actually, you know, not entirely out of the realm of possibility for something that somebody would say in 11th century England. So we have have both of these, both these settings, both the setting in which Shakespeare existed and that in which the uh, play takes place are both settings where there are no Jews and yet they hate them very much. And I wish I was surprised. Yeah. 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 I know what to expect though. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You know, well, I, I, we should also like, know, you know, Chaucer is on this whole list too. The Chaucer is also, you know, one of these guys who like, has he ever met a Jew? I don't know. Not necessarily. He might, you know, he traveled enough that maybe, but certainly not in England. But did he hate them? Yep, he did. Sure did. Yeah. Hmm? My best friend's a descendant of Chaucer. Oh, lucky them. Maybe. She does not hate Jews. So <laughs> improvements have been made over the past centuries. Yeah. And, and, you know, and they're based on, based on new evidence, I think we're now, you know, mostly think Chaucer probably wasn't a rapist necessarily that we know of. So. Yeah, that story went in the direction that it normally doesn't go in. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and the whole thing, and the whole kind of discussion of it was very interesting And in that, you know, it's kind of on the one hand, like, yes, fine, this is like new evidence, but also like, this is not the same as like a Me Too accusation and a guy gets exonerated. It's that like, we have like a small number of texts that were never exactly entirely clear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it is like, it is not like the, like the story is not that like Cecil Champagne like made a false accusation and was proven to be a liar, which like the Me Too language that was being used in some like popular discussions uh, seemed to imply. Yeah. And also like that doesn't mean Chaucer's like not a misogynist and all sorts of other shitty things. Yeah. Yeah. So even if he's like not, you know, like less likely than previously thought to be a rapist. (laughs) <laughs> like that that bar the bar is sort of on the floor there uh, yeah it's it's very low it's it's very low it's, it's it's this is a very surreal conversation to be asking about this yeah yeah all right so well with that let's uh get into the the historia ad veritas where i'm going to talk about the uh sparse set of information that we have about the historical macbeth since why not i've never covered a macbeth adaptation exactly have you ever actually before. covered shakespeare before that is a good question. Um, I covered Shakespeare in love. 
Yeah, I remember that one, but I couldn't remember if you'd actually covered any Shakespeare adaptations. I'm actually not sure that I have. I think in part just because like, I don't know, it seems like there's so many of them that it seems like just such a like can of worms to open. And I decided to do this one in part because like I'd seen and enjoyed the movie and it's a relatively recent release. Yeah. I'm not sure I would want to like commit to doing you know, a whole series of Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you know, I'm not I'm not averse to it kind of as things come up, I guess, but yeah, that. So yeah, I guess I would say that that I think any any Shakespeare adaptation set in an approximately pre-modern you know setting is fair game. But I'm also not necessarily going to like sit down and cover all of them. Yeah, no, because I was thinking of the, the Hollow Crown that they they released the first series mm. in 2012 in conjunction with the Queen's Jubilee that year. I don't remember what 50 is for a jubilee. And then also the Olympics and it was a series. Right. Yeah. And I, I was thinking of that one because that one yeah. is the medieval era. Yeah, that would definitely be fair game. And as of like, I, I don't have an active plan at the moment, but like uh, that Netflix movie, The King is um, I think kind of very heavily based on, on the shade, the, the relevant Shakespeare. Is it Henry V? I can't even remember. I, I, I can't remember. I think it is Henry V. Um, I think, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, the first I, I, I've not seen this movie and know very little about it, which is why I do not remember. Like, I do not actually remember, but I think it's Henry the Fifth. Yeah, the first set of Hollow Crown episodes is Richard the Second, Henry the Fourth, and Henry the Fifth. Okay? Yeah, so which I saw Henry the Fifth on stage in London back in 2013. Mm, okay, Dubois played him. Oh, fun. But, but yeah, so those certainly would be would be fair game. And I would say, yeah, in general, I consider Shakespeare to like be fair game. But yeah, as I said, yeah, not yeah. Do I mean, but also everything. if you're not careful, I mean, covering Shakespeare is going to be your next Robin Hood. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. So like, you know, I it's really, you know, I, I don't necessarily like want to like do that much Shakespeare. Yeah. But yeah, so as I've already mentioned, Shakespeare, like most other 16th century, like 16th, 17th century dramatists, and also like most people covering the Middle Ages today, just like in fiction, just like does not give a shit about history at all. So, you know, the historical Macbeth, unsurprisingly, is pretty different from, you know, people's idea of Macbeth, which I would say comes like at in now what comes like mostly from Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was king of Scots from 1040 to 1057. So he does essentially, you know, become king after killing Duncan the first in battle. But it is worth noting that he also does like have a claim. So Duncan is his cousin. He is a descendant of uh, King King Kenneth the second, which does funny. Like Kenneth, Kenneth doesn't sound very medieval now, but I can't, that sounds fake. It's one of those that, yeah, it's like what it's like one of those names that it's like it is like it is like a valid medieval name, but it just doesn't sound like it should be. Yeah. Owning a dog, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> Which people do. People do, just like there is, yeah. you know, medieval king named Kenneth. Yeah. Yeah. King Kenneth. At least. Uh, and, yeah. And his wife, who we we do actually know her name, I will note. So his uh his wife is named Grok. This play actually, mm, this play does not actually, or a uh, slash movie uh, does not by any stretch of the imagination come even close to passing the If Decker test. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, there, no yeah, there are test. two women. I would make an argument that neither of them actually has a name. No, because she's, her name is, is in conjunction with her husband. It's not her own. Yeah, yeah. so. She's only uh, yeah. ever identified in her, in terms of her relationship to him. 
yeah so yeah she and like he never calls her anything like he never like gruach is uh by the way her the the real name of the uh the wife of Macbeth's wife and she is actually of uh, of royal background herself she is uh, the a descendant of uh she's a descendant of king kenneth III. i was gonna say if he didn't like the name gruach he could have made something up but then i realized he named a character gonorrheal so yeah yeah <laughs> But, but he also, but you know, he, if he didn't like Grok, he could have made something up um, and yeah, and, and chose not to do that. So, you know, it is, it is a choice that like this woman does not have a name, nor does Lady Macduff. No, no. Again, she is also, she is Lady Macduff. She does not have a name of her own. So yeah, so we have uh, two women, neither of you. I think we also, there's like, there's like a maid who is one of the people who witnesses Lady Macbeth's kind of descent into madness. Uh, she also does not have a name. No, but she gossips about it with the one guy, the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So she has, she has lines, but does not have a name. She, as far as we know, survives, but doesn't have a name. So it doesn't matter. And uh, the other two women neither have nor na- names, nor do they survive the film. So yes, we, the film does uh, intensely fail the Decker test. Uh, but yes, no, in, in real life, we, we do at least know her name. So, and like know something about her. This was her second marriage that she was previously married to like another cousin of Macbeth. And that this is in fact kind of part of how he, he establishes his, uh, his claim initially to his kind of first lord, his pre, his first lordship is through, you know, his both like family connection, but also probably like the marriage to then that person, that person's widow is actually something that like in the 11th century is not uncommon as a way to kind of shore up your claim. Mm-hmm. And so he, they, as far as we know, did not have children, or at least presumably, you know, seem to not have sons. It's not possible. You know, nobody talks about daughters. So it's certainly not impossible that they have a daughter that just we've totally ignored. The only way she would have possibly been mentioned if she was married off advantageously, I would imagine. Right, right. And so I I don't I don't think that there are any references to daughters. And certainly it seems that they did not have sons and that uh, it was actually her son for her first marriage with the unpleasant name Lulak. By the way, I will also note Gosh, Gaelic is also not like a language that I know. Um, so my apologies I mean- if I'm also butchering some of these names. The fact that I can say Saoirse Ronan's name, that's pretty much the extent. Right. For me. Right. Yeah. Right. So yes, my, my apologies on this uh, language as well is not, uh, not one of mine. So yes, uh, her, her, so her son from her first marriage, Lulak is uh, accepted as Macbeth by his, you know, by, as like, by Macbeth as his son and heir. Mm-hmm. This is also something that, you know, I will note we like, this is about the limit of what we know about Grach. After that, we're about done. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, all of the stuff about, you know, in the play about her, you know, encouraging him to commit all these murders and being kind of like, in some ways, the sort of driving force behind his ambition. That is not something that there is any evidence of necessarily. But I do think that the fact that, you know, he was very kind of willing to accept her son as his own, I think probably does speak to some influence that she has. I mean, as little as we know about Rock, this is the most I've learned about her. Right, right. This was I, this was the most I learned. I did not know until today that this is a woman who like, has a name that Mm -hmm. nobody gives a shit about. I think I mentioned in another podcast, the Billy on the street thing for a dollar name a woman. (laughs) 
her daughter name a woman. Yep. <laughs> yes. Thanks. One of the other things is that Macbeth's reign is not necessarily something that's like immediately controversial. He seems to have been sort of acknowledged by a lot of people as like a perfectly valid ruler. And that in part reflects the fact that, you know, he he did not like murder Duncan in like the dark by like slitting his throat, which is, you know, a, a sort of, you know, a cowardly method of killing somebody. He kills him in battle, which is a perfectly valid way in the 11th century to, you know, take on somebody's position as king is to defeat them in battle and kill them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like that's kind of fine. And he is kind of, as I said, recognized by many as being a perfectly valid ruler. He did face some rebellions in 1045 and 1046 that proved unsuccessful. And in 1050, he actually left Scotland on a pilgrimage to Rome, which suggests that at that point, he did feel that his reign was relatively secure, that that's uh, more time away from your kingdom than most people would choose to do if you felt that your hold on it was tenuous. Right. But things then did kind of go downhill. He ended up uh, actually, you know, giving in 1054 some kind of parts or, you know, like being forced into giving some parts of Southern Scotland to Malcolm and uh, is then killed in battle by him three years later. Similar, obviously, in some ways. A couple of kind of references in the play that are interesting. So uh, we have the kind of brief reference at the beginning to Norway to, you know, Norway as being, you know, one of the kind of big forces in this battle, you know, I guess they're sort of fighting against Norway, right? And then the Thane of Cawdor betrayed them and sided with Norway. And this is interesting. So there is a Norse saga, the Orkneyinga saga, which talks about a conflict between the Norse Jarl of Orkney. So Orkney at this point is under Norse control, Thorfinn Sigurdsson, and his conflict with somebody named Karl Hundesson, which uh, nobody can agree on who Karl Hundesson is. So some people think it's Duncan. Some people think it's Macbeth. Some people think the whole thing is made up and it doesn't matter. <laughs> but, you know. But maybe. Um, yeah, but you know, so like interesting at least in that there is like, I mean, certainly that at least like it is, it is the case that like this is a period in which there are like areas that are, you know, quite close by that are under Norse rule and that like, you know, the Norse are interested in this like not that very distant part of the world. Not unreasonable that there is a kind of, you know, indication of some conflict with Norway and that the connection with England at the end of the play has some, I would say, also kind of real antecedent in that we don't, I believe, have any reason to think that Malcolm was acting with English support, but there was an English invasion in 1054. And, you know, this is also a period where, you know, if you think about these dates, right, we are not that, you know, Macbeth dies in 1057. The Norman conquest is 1066. The Norman conquest is sort of based on the fact that, like, there, you know, have already, like, been a lot of Normans there and that, like, there are, in fact, like, connections between the Norman dukes and English kings. And uh, so, you know, he is involved in some of these conflicts that are already beginning between uh, England and Normandy. The last thing that I wanted to note in terms of the historical Macbeth is to mention that we do have at least a kind of good guess about what Shakespeare's main source is. So that it's not like Shakespeare, you know, made, made all of this alternative version. Shakespeare didn't make up all of these alternative facts about Macbeth. Um, (laughs) 
that his main source was uh, Raphael Hollinshead's Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland, which was first published in 1577. And, you know, as we were talking about, right, with Jane Austen, that, like, this is the period in which, like, the fact that it's called Chronicles and is a history doesn't mean that it's, like, a history. Right. It's like, if I don't know something, it's kind of cool to just make it up. I, yeah, I, I can't do that in my dissertation. Yeah, no, I, I also, it seems, um, I I seem to not be able to do that in my books now. It's, it's really too bad. This is uh, clearly a source that he was familiar with and that this seems to probably be where he got both a lot of what we see in Macbeth and also actually a lot of uh, King Lear. Yeah, yeah. Nice for them that they don't have to be held to standards. Right? Uh, it's been so easy. It's been so easy that if you're like, oh, I don't have a source for this, I'm just going to make up some fucking bullshit. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Being a historian was so easy back then. Yeah. I mean, much like being a student, you didn't have to study Shakespeare. You don't have to prove your facts. Yeah. 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 Ugh, those were the days. <laughs> Oh, yes. And then the, the final thing is, uh, so this is a, a play written, as we've already mentioned, sometime between like 1603 and like 1606, 1607. I think 1606 is the current date that like is probably when it was first staged. So this is during the reign of King James the first of England, King James the sixth of Scotland. Not only do we see, I mean, so first of all, the fact that it's like, oh, here's, we have the Scottish guy who's ruling now. Let's have a play about Scotland that we have the concerned with witches and that James is uh, descended from Malcolm III. And so it's, you know, make you know, in the same way, right. As like Shakespeare, you know, writes Richard III and Richard III is the obvious villain because, uh, you know, because uh, Elizabeth is descended from his rival right. in the same way. Macbeth doesn't come off so well because Shakespeare's writing a play, you know, while under the reign of somebody who is descended from Macbeth's rival. Yeah. Yeah. As established, Shakespeare does not give a shit about history. No, why bother? This is, this is, I mean, no, I brought this up on another podcast. I don't remember which episode, because again, I keep coming back. But whoever wrote The Darkest Hour, the Winston Churchill movie, and I can't remember the screenwriter's name, said something like, you have to make stuff up to make it interesting. The implication that history is boring on its own, which is just right. bullshit. But mm-hmm. it, you can see that this has been a story convention for centuries upon centuries. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, and it's in, uh, you know, I mean, even even much older than that. I mean, it certainly is in the uh, the Roman histories that like it's very yeah. common that like you just like if, you know, you like somebody made a speech and it mattered and, you know, you just like you just like are like, cool, I'm just going to invent this speech. Yeah, completely. Yep. Yeah. And it's going to be very morally instructive in some way. Those were the days. <laughs> So with that, I think we can move on to the Fabula Nostra, where we talk about another film or piece of media inspired by this one. I think we already kind of talked about this, that uh, I think we have sort of similar ideas. Yeah, I think we're on the same wavelength, and I really don't think listeners will be surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, I would really like to to see Lady Macbeth in her earlier years when she, when yeah. she has her own name. Yeah, now now that I know her name, I mean, I I don't think that's going to be the name of the movie because I don't think anyone will go see a movie named Gruach. No, but actually I was basing it. So um, I was going to cast Florence Pugh mm. in, in somewhat part because she already did a movie called Lady Macbeth. Oh, I don't think I knew that one. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's not about Lady Macbeth. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it is fantastic 
fantastic. It's the check that out. first movie that I ever saw her in. She is absolutely incredible in it. I mean, if you see that movie, you absolutely understand the career that Florence Pugh has now. Yeah. Um, but I was going to cast Florence Pugh as, as kind of that, you know, I was thinking, you know, early pre-marriage, but now that I know a little bit more about Garak, I was thinking maybe, you know, in between marriages, mm. what do those years look like? Yeah. Forming who she is. But I also want to cheat a little bit because I would also really love to see Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand do another play together. Yeah, no, I think that would, and that would actually, I think, be really interesting, right, to do like a back and forth and to actually like keep that casting, right, and sort of have, you know, some like interpolated scenes of the present or of like, you know, maybe earlier in their marriage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I mean, you could also just treat it like a theater company. What can Denzel and Francis do next? Yeah. Uh, like yeah. Denzel Washington is not a stranger to Shakespeare. He did Kenneth Branagh's mm-hmm. Much Ado About Nothing like 30 mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. Um, with Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson as Benedict and Beatrice. Yeah. And actually, so, okay. So I, I also went to the Lady Macbeth prequel. Uh, my casting idea actually was to do like a quite young Gruach and uh, to cast Bella Ramsey, who I did not like Catherine called Birdie, but I do like Bella Ramsey. But yeah, so I, I think she would be interesting. Maybe, maybe more along the lines of like her, her Game of Thrones vibe. Yeah, she's versus she, her. She's Catherine better than vibe. what that movie gave her. Yes. But the the other thought actually that I now have inspired by what you just said, I read a little while ago uh, the novel Learwife, okay. which is a kind of a retelling of the, of like, it's a kind of like sequel slash prequel to King Lear, which is about the wife of King Lear, who is obviously somebody who is like distinctly absent from the play, right? That you, uh, you know, you know, he must've gotten these daughters from somewhere, but yeah, she's, yeah. uh, you know, quite tellingly absent. How was um, that as a book? I really, really liked it. Really? Okay. Um, and I also think like, it's beautifully, beautifully written. So I recommend it. But I actually think like that would be cool to do an adaptation of Learwife. And I, it covers enough ground that I think you would maybe have to like cast younger versions of them too, but that there would be at least like some scenes. Yeah. Which would be Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. All right. Lear is actually one of my favorites. You should check out Learwife. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. I have some Kindle points. credits, So so yeah, yeah. I, I had I had trouble with Fabula Nostra this time because there's really not a whole lot. Like it's a lot easier to do a what if if the movie is mm-hmm. bad. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But here the movie is good, and I kind of have to think about okay, what would I what would I want to change? So this is kind of what I did when we talked about the Lion in Winter, and I, I said mm-hmm. that I would like you know Eleanor of Aquitaine when she goes down to 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 the Holy Land. Yeah. Yeah, that sometimes when I do the Fabula Nostra, it's the movie I wish existed instead of the one that I just watched. Right. Whereas here, it's, you know, the the movie I would like to see in addition to in addition. this one, yeah, which is, yeah. you know, which is, which is all, which is nice when all the rare occasions I get to do that because I hate everything. I, I mean, there there are too many movies out for all of them to be good. Yes, and I would argue that movies um, set in the Middle Ages are just proportionately bad. I do feel that way about my historical field, too. Or at least that, like, I'm disproportionately angered by them is maybe more what it is. 
certainly yeah. some of these are the movies that I hate are movies that other people seem not to hate, though, in one particular case that I'm thinking of, I kind of feel like I'm like, was like gaslit by the discourse on it. But cough, last duel, cough. My medievalist friend brought that up. We do a, a workshop with grad students once a month and he presented and um, he brought up how terrible it was. There were so many people, not medievalists generally, but like people whose opinions of film, I think are worth hearing, who really liked it. I think it has its merits as a film, but also it's basically an attempt to do what Kurosawa did with Rashomon. Right. Which so I've already seen need it. it done by Kurosawa in Rashomon. So why do I need to see Ridley Scott do it? You mean since Ridley Scott's not as good of a director? Yes, precisely. Yeah, yeah. And also it's just, like the amount of them, like, I, there was also just such an intense, like, look what a feminist movie this is. And I'm like, your feminist movie where you give a woman's husband and her rapist at least as much, like, their perspectives at least as much importance as hers and also, like, make her a minor character in a story about her own rape. That's your feminist movie? Okay, sure. It's absolutely not a feminist movie. And and I, by the time they got to her point of view, it mm-hmm. went by so quickly. Yeah, yeah. And there's the fact that like, this is a, like the way it then is set up, it means that you have to like watch a brutal rape scene twice, which is, yeah, which is like why, I mean, this is why I won't, I won't teach it. Cause like, there's a lot of movies that I hate, but that I teach because they, there are like interesting things to then say about them. This movie, I, that movie I can't because I just, I just don't think it's like worth the like triggering nature of no, you don't you don't scenes. want to have your students watching watching you know the same rape scene from multiple point of views yeah. multiple times yeah. Really. It, it's, yeah no exactly so you know so it's like for that it's like okay so this has no redeeming value and it's also like what like i'm supposed to like give you a cookie for saying a woman didn't lie like that's i mean that that's another instance when the bar is on the floor Exactly. Exactly. Like that, like that's the extent to which this is like, quote, a feminist movie is that it's like, look, we don't think this woman lied about being raped. It's like, really? That's, that's the bar here. Okay. Anyway, the very, very least. Anyway. Yeah. This is a movie that I think you've actually liked. Yes. This was a good movie. Yeah. So with that, we can move into the, uh, the estimatio or rating where you rate the film on a scale of one to five based on whatever purely subjective criteria we see fit. Uh, would you like to go first? Um, I'm going to do a 4.5 out of five. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm taking out that half, po- half of a point uh, because the unnecessary liver of a blasphemous Jew line that just yeah. really has no place there. I, I think also, you know, and this is a problem with any adaptation of Macbeth, like we talked about, her change to feeling guilty is a little bit too abrupt. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, if we're basing this purely on performance, it's five out of five. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm giving it a four out of five. And I think that's really that basically the point off is like for Shakespeare. Okay. <laughs> like it's a point off, like essentially it's like a, you know, some of the things that you mentioned already are feeding into that, you know, the like, the like namelessness of these women, you know, like the, the also like the, the ways in which like, you know, Shakespeare just like blithely does not give a shit about history, but you know, so it's really that like, I think like 
as a work of historical fiction and in some ways, honestly, as like a story, especially from a kind of gender perspective, like there are obvious, you know, flaws in the play Macbeth. Uh, yeah, as an as an adaptation, as a performance, I think it's a five out of five. And yeah, it's basically like getting a point off that for basically things I don't like about Shakespeare. Which is fair. I mean, as we said, yeah. this is all subjective anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, but I would absolutely very highly recommend this film. Yeah. And it's I I very rarely say. It's one of the most solid Shakespeare adaptations that I've, that I think I've watched. But, um, but yeah. as I mentioned, my spectrum is Macbeth and 10 Things I Hate About You. <laughs> yeah which i which i think is fair that like those are those are both like genuinely excellent shakespeare adaptations that are doing like really really different things but are like doing them extremely well and this is also a movie i will say that i would actually like from an educator perspective i would actually highly recommend I don't think it has like enough that's actually quite that interesting for me to do in like my medieval at the movies class, but I would highly recommend this as like a film to show if you're like teaching Macbeth. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, in you know, in terms of just that, like, you know, we, as you were saying before, right, that like Shakespeare and like, the, you know, plays in general are not designed for you to like sit in a classroom or like alone in your house and read them. They're designed to be experienced as performances, And given that, like, probably in general, you cannot, in fact, like, take your students to the theater multiple times in your Shakespeare course, you know, there are limitations. But I would say, like, as as like a, you know, thinking of this as then, like, okay, what would the experience be like of actually like seeing a Shakespeare play? I would like very, very highly recommend to anybody teaching Macbeth, uh, like to show to show this to students. Yeah, I think it would be great for that. Um, also, yeah. you, you don't have to split it over that many class periods. Right, yeah. Or, you know, or make them watch it at home. It's also, you know, you can... Watch it at home. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I, I know I some professors here will do special screenings, tell people to come. Yeah, school. yeah. Like I, yeah, like I, I do that as well for like some things. Yeah, like I'll do, I'll do like screenings uh, sometimes for things that like you sort of have to watch and uh, sometimes things that are like for fun. I watched Beckett with my medieval law students. Oh, nice. Yeah. I told you I saw that with Peter O'Toole, right? You did, yes. Yeah, I think we I think we talked about that actually uh, when you were on for Lion and Winter. Right, right. Yes. When so you since Twilight since Lion and Winter is the sequel to Beckett, uh, it is the sequel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that 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 is a highlight experience for me. Uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds so amazing. Yeah, Morgan, thank you for uh, for once again coming on uh, on this you know on this medieval history podcast. Oh, and we have plans for more. Yes, yes, we, we do. A Catherine Parr movie that's coming out. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm very curious. Yep. But yeah, so are there places where the listeners can find you on the internet? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Morgan R. Morales. All one word, no, no underscores or anything. All right, great. For, for as long as Twitter exists. For as long as Twitter is there, God knows I've been there since 2008. So, yeah. Might as well stick it out to the bitter end. Yep. Yep. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app, rate and review on whatever app you listen to, but in particular, Apple Podcasts is really helpful. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. And please follow the podcast on Twitter at MediaEvilPod and join the Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah H. Decker. 
If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Morgan, thank you again. No, thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes.